praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne one more time, Lord, to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word, the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the teaching of his word. And Lord, we pray that you cause your people to see the need of Christ, to hear from Christ, because we have a problem of not hearing of spiritual things. Though you speak, Lord, unless you open our ears and plug them, we won't hear. And as the Lord was fond of saying, let him who has ears hear, and no man can accept the things that he said unless it has been granted for them to hear. And Lord, we pray that you grant it to us that we may hear what says the Lord in his word. And Lord, we pray for all those also who shall listen to this message that you will cause them to hear what they need to hear and to know about Christ. We pray and thank you in his precious name. Amen. And finally, we are back to John chapter 6. Brother Robert has been bugging me about it for the past seven weeks. Eight. <laughs> yes, John 6. You never know, we may be in John 6 till the end of summer. We'll see what the Lord will give us. But John 6, verses 1 to 15, we have a record of the feeding of the 5,000. So we are going to be working our way through the feeding of the 5,000 and extracting theological understanding of what that was about. It's not just about the barley loaves and two fish and how Jesus can make your life glorious. I'm going to be reading from John 6, 1 to 15, and this will be the NKJV. I didn't realize that I had the New King James there, but that's fine. That's a good translation still. I, I normally read from the NSB. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, 
make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Five loaves of barley and two fish. That's my title. That's our title. Or you can say the feeding of the 5,000. In the book of John, there are seven miracles. You see that as you are reading the book of John, there are seven perfect witnesses of Jesus Christ, seven perfect witnesses of the depravity of man. We have seven miracles recorded for us, and this is very purposeful, even though from reading the book of John, you realize that he is aware of all the other miracles that Jesus performed, but the Holy Spirit determined to bring us seven miracles that culminate in the resurrection, in the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. The only gospel writer who records for us the death and resurrection of Lazarus is John. So these miracles are very purposeful because they are leading us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is why the death of Lazarus is placed exactly where it was placed because immediately after that, we are going into the death and resurrection of the Lord himself. So this miracle is miracle number four. It's miracle number four. Miracle number one is the miracle of water into wine in John 2. And miracle number two, the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. Number three, the healing of the man at the pool, the sick man at the pool. In John chapter 5. Then number 4, the feeding of the 5,000, which is in John 6. Number 5, we have Jesus walking on water. And that's John chapter 6. And number 6, healing the blind man. And that's going to be John chapter 9. And number 7, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. So the feeding of the 5,000, which is about ten to 20,000 people, depending on how you interpret the story. Because the story says 5,000 men. And if you assume that they had families with children, you can come up with ten to 20,000 people. And as I said, this is... The fourth miracle recorded in the book of John and the only miracle recorded in all the four Gospels is the only miracle that is in every one of the four Gospels. And there's a lot of theology 
and background in this story that will culminate in John 8 in Jesus' self-disclosure as God before Abraham was, I am. So there are a number of background themes that are important to understand if we have to gain more theological understanding of what is being taught here. If you just go and read it as a story of Jesus feeding hungry people and you stop there, you won't understand the theology. There's a lot of theology from this story. And part of the background is going to come from what John has been telling us as he has been writing his gospel right from John chapter 1. He says in John 1, verses 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. And in John 3.14, John records for us and says, these are the words of Jesus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And in John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In John 5.45-47, Jesus says, Do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we have a background there that John is developing that is necessary for everything that's going to show up in the rest of the chapter and subsequent chapters. But there's also some other background to it. We have had another great prophet before Jesus. Elisha had fed a multitude. Elisha had fed a multitude in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42-44. I just took this part of the chapter, but if you go and read the whole chapter, you have the whole story. But this is what this section of the chapter says. 2 Kings 4, verses 42-44. Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? <laughs> Shall I set this before one hundred men? He said again, Give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So Elisha, Moses are in the background. The Exodus, the Passover, 
are in the background. The wilderness experience of Israel is in the background. The deity of Christ is in the background. Israel's history is in the background. And John is working the teaching that Jesus is God and is superior to Moses, is superior to Elisha, and brings better things than Moses and all the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is the God of Israel whom Moses and Israel dealt with even in their exodus from Egypt. It is he who fed them in the desert. And so, the conclusion to all this is, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So the feeding of the 5,000 is supposed to remind the Jews of their history in the desert. Their history from Egypt. It is a recapitulation of their history as they sojourned to the promised land. And the promise that God had made to them through Moses, that there was one who was coming. The prophet that Moses talked about. Because at the end of this, they are thinking, this has to be the prophet. So John records for us this story, and he says, We'll go to the first four verses of John 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. If you've been reading the book of John, you learn that after these things is a favorite expression of John for connecting things. It was for making a transition from one set of events to the new set of events. And it wasn't saying that this happened the next day or necessarily the next week. He is just saying this set of Events are coming after what I had recorded for you. So after the healing of the sick man on the Sabbath and the confrontation that had happened in John 5, there was some time there. We don't know how long it was between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. Could have been two weeks later, could have been three months later or six months later. We don't really know. But after that encounter, we have this story. And in between, obviously, Jesus did a whole lot of other things, as John would say in John 20, right? He did a whole lot of other things that were not recorded. And if you remember in John 5, the Lord Jesus had taken time to give the Jews a theological lecture of his person as the Son of God. And what was going to flow from that reality, that God had made this Jesus, who is deity, the judge of all men. So the person and identity of Jesus as God is at the center 
of the teaching of John. And John is proving to us that Jesus is God. And all these miracles, as it were, were just supporting evidence to substantiate that claim. So after these things, when Jesus healed the sick man on the Sabbath in John 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and that was Judea, south. Jerusalem was in the south, and now he has traveled up north in Galilee because that's where the Sea of Galilee is. And this sea was also known as the Sea of Tiberias, two names that were used for the same sea. And John says, Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So a great multitude of people followed Jesus. And the reason why they followed him was because of the signs that Jesus was performing, that Jesus was continuously performing and because he was continuously performing signs they were continuously following him they were continuously following the show that's what they were following john's account of the gospel is more theological than just storytelling he gives you the motivation he gives us by the holy spirit the theological motivations and understanding behind what was happening, either from the people's side or from Jesus' side. The people were following Jesus, not for Jesus, but because of the miraculous signs that he was performing. And that is important understanding for us to have for how things are going to turn out in this chapter because It's not going to be nice. There's going to be some serious misunderstandings and heated exchanges between Jesus and those who followed him for the signs. And John is very purposeful in making a distinction. There were those who were in the multitude, the seekers, and yet there was another group of the true disciples that were with Jesus. So we have two groups of people, those who were seeking Jesus for the miracles and those who were with Jesus, the true disciples. And John also drops something for us along the way, and he says, the Passover of the Jews was near. He doesn't give any detail, then he just goes. Why, John? It's necessary for understanding the theology of what he is writing about. It was dropped as a breadcrumb for the purpose of laying the background and theological foundation of the discourse that follows in the rest of the chapter. Because this is a discourse of salvation. In verse 3, John said, And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. With his disciples, not the great multitude. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. 
So the Lord took time out from the great multitude to be with his disciples. Apparently according to Mark, because Mark has an account of the same story that gives you additional detail. John is more theological. The disciples of Jesus had just got back from a mission that Jesus had sent them and they were tired. That was the reason why Jesus said, okay, time out. Let's go to the mountain and you guys need some rest. Here, Mark 6, verse 7, and then Mark 6, 30 to 31. In Mark 6, 7, this is when they were commissioned to go on the mission. And Mark says, and he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. That was the mission. In Mark 6, verses 30 and 31, they are back from the mission. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So this is where John picks up. When Jesus is gone to the mountain. So there was apparently some mountain that everybody knew about that they didn't even need to tell us what was the name of the mountain. By the mountain. So it is here that Jesus in John 6, 5 lifts up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. The story, as I said, is recorded also in the book of Mark 6, verses 30 to 41. If you go and read, you have some more finer details of what was going on. But for what we need to learn today, we are going to be working our understanding from John's record of that story. So Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a great multitude coming toward him. And then he posed a very interesting question and said to Philip, Where shall we buy Bread that these may eat. Jesus asked Philip about a location to buy bread so as to feed the multitude. But why Philip? Why not Peter? Why Philip? John 1.44 Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip was called to become a disciple in Galilee, according to John 1.43. And Bethsaida was the closest city to where they were in Galilee. It was right off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, if you go check the map. 
in the north. And Tiberias was another city in the south side of the Sea of Galilee. So you have the north side of the sea and you have the south side of the sea. So the two major cities that are closest to the sea are Tiberias in the south and Bethsaida in the north. Okay. So this is Philip's neighborhood. His hometown. And he's supposed to know the whereabouts of all the shopping centers. All the Krogers, the Walmarts, and the food giants in this area. Philip, you tell us where we can go buy bread. But this was not about Philip having the best navigation system of the area. For John tells us the motivation behind the question. Pay attention to the question. Jesus asked for a location where they could not just get food for free, but to buy. Jesus wanted, was not asking for a soup kitchen. He wanted a place where they could go and buy. It's very important. I'm going to work the theology out of that. But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So if you're asking a guy who knows everything about the area, this is to say for those who are in the hearing, okay, there's nowhere where we can find food for these many people because this guy knows everything about the area. Philip knows everything about the area and there's nowhere where you can get enough food to feed these many people. So Jesus is very purposeful. He's eliminating any would be doubters that, oh, yeah, of course, there was a Walmart behind there. He just went and got some food. <laughs> but listen to this. So John gives us the detail of the motivation on the part of Jesus. Jesus was testing Philip. What does that mean? Why test him? And what was he being tested of? Philip was being tested to see if he was learning anything about the person of Jesus, having been around him for some time. For it is possible for people to always be around Jesus and always be hearing about Jesus, but never coming to the knowledge of Jesus. John 14, 7 to 9. Jesus just told them that he is the truth. He is the truth, the way, and the life. And Jesus says, if you had known me, that supposes that they don't know him. He's talking to his disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The disciples were failing to understand who Jesus was. And 
This question was designed to lay a foundation for their understanding of who Jesus was. The disciples could tell that this Jesus, this person, was a very unusual person. They touched him. They lived with him and they saw his miracles, but they still could not say who Jesus was. They still could not figure out who Jesus was. Even now, if Jesus were to show up, all the people who say, show me Jesus, will still not believe, even if he goes to the hospital and heal everybody in there, they will come up with some explanation to deny him. The disciples did not know who Jesus was. What kind of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. They do not know who Jesus is. Until he revealed himself to them. Until he revealed himself to them. Salvation to you is the revelation of the person of Jesus. It's not the tithes. It's not the free will. It's all that is nonsense. Unless Christ is revealed, you won't know who Jesus is. And people take it for granted when they make the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. A sinner by themselves cannot make that confession. Impossible. Even those who lived with him could not make that confession. So much that when Peter was able to make that confession, Jesus said to him, Peter, you are so good. I didn't realize you were that smart. <laughs> no, no. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In John 12, 16, John says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So how did they come to understand who Jesus was? Luke 24-25 And he, Jesus, opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So the understanding of the person and work of Jesus does not come from some revelation outside what the scriptures are saying. Because there are many people who are glorying in that the Holy Spirit talks to them outside what the scriptures actually say. And yet Jesus' method was he opened their minds to understand what was written. And that has to be how we deal with things of God. No man can know who Jesus is unless God the Father reveals Jesus to that person. It's a one-to-one -one experience. God has to do it one person at a time. Hear Philip's response in John 6-7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Mark records for us and says to that part of the statement, 
in Mark 7:37, he says, But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? In their mind, Jesus has lost it. Jesus is saying something impossible. You are crazy, Jesus. That's what they are saying. It's almost like the same experience when Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood. Who touched me? And they're thinking, what are you thinking? There are so many people here. But Jesus knew who had touched him. And Jesus here too knew what he was going to do. Philip answered as one who was still in the flesh. One denarius was a day's wage for an average worker. One. And 200 denarii was one's 10-month salary. 10 months of working. If they did not get a raise. So Jesus was suggesting something impossible to be done in the flesh. And for a moment, they are thinking, he is out of his mind. But listen to verse 89. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Whatever solution we may propose right now is too inadequate. That's the conclusion. (laughs) The salary is not enough and the fish is not enough. So apparently, when Jesus had instructed for them to go and see in the crowd, because Mark says Jesus instructed them to go and see what the crowd had in Mark's narrative, Andrew had taken the charge to investigate who had brought some sandwiches in their lunch bags. And his investigation discovered the lunch of a very young boy who had his whole life on it. But of course, the discovery does not help the situation. Feeding that many people with just five loaves of bread and two fish is not going to do it. Buying food for these many people is impossible. It is costly. But not only that, you need to pay attention to something. The food that this young boy has is not high quality food. It is barley bread. Very cheap bread. Very lowly bread. And some two fish for flavor. Just to get it to go. Wheat bread is higher quality bread. Very important. And this poor little boy does not have it. He's a poor little boy. And mommy has made some lunch for him. And Jesus shows up and he's taking his lunch away from him. What's wrong with you, Jesus? It is important that the disciples learn that Jesus had asked for an impossible thing. 
that they or nobody in the crowd could provide a solution for. Very important. That is necessary for any man to be saved. To understand that when God is talking about salvation, when he's talking about righteousness, he is asking for something that you can't do. You have to make the realization. And it is one of the realizations that will have to happen to anybody who is born again. You are born again that you may make that discovery that it's impossible. But once you make that discovery, Jesus is always there to provide the solution. So you never get born again and be left to be born again and just die as a born again person who doesn't know that Jesus is Savior. God is going to make sure that he avails Jesus to you in one way or another. Here is Jesus' solution in John 6, 10 and 11. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So Jesus gives a command. Simple command. Just get the people to sit down and let me deal with the situation. Jesus takes the loaves from the boy. And the little boy is probably thinking, the fact that there was a little boy in there, it means it's a mixed multitude. Different ages. So the little boy is thinking, what is this man going to do with my lunch? But the boy obliges. Why? Because grace is irresistible. That's the power of the Son of God speaking. He has commanded it. And the young dude, the young boy, has to surrender his food. And Jesus got the food and gave thanks and distributed the food to the disciples and the disciples to those who were sitting down. And they ate as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. So here's the aftermath of the feeding. Verse 12 to 15. The aftermath of the feeding. So you see, there was a problem and then the solution of the problem, and then the aftermath in the story. So here's the aftermath of the feeling. Before I actually read it, I wanted to bring to your attention that John does not tell us what Jesus actually said to multiply the bread. He didn't tell us how it was done. He just gave thanks. And in giving thanks, and he started giving food to his disciples, and the food just kept flowing, and flowing, and flowing, and the disciples just kept giving, and giving, until everybody was full. Okay. But here, the aftermath of the feeding, verses 12 to 15. So when they were filled, 
he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So now he had to depart by himself without the disciples. When we are reading these things, and we end up with just practical applications, as many people do the Bible, this story and any other story was not told for us to draw practical lessons. That is very secondary, if not tertiary, to what God intended by the story. We have in this story the picture of redemption. The spiritual condition of men left to themselves as hungry and needing God to be fed. And there's another problem. The resources of men are insufficient to provide for their own salvation. But the feeding of these men is a type of the salvation that Jesus is bringing. Sin has put all men in a situation where they have not enough resources to redeem themselves. If the multitude has to be fed, someone has to have not 200 denarii worth of bread, but hundreds of thousands of denarii. And none has those kinds of resources. The poor do not have it and the rich can't afford it because this feeding only is of the Lord. Because salvation is of the Lord. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Psalm 49, 6-9. It's a very important verse. It has to be a verse that you always have to highlight in your Bible. Psalm 49, 6-9. Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. If there is anything that can be found among the children of men, it is just five barley loaves of bread and two fish. And this is a portion for the very poor. Just sufficient food for a little boy just for lunch. But men need more than just lunch. They need eternal salvation. 
Men are not able to save themselves from sin. And all men need to be saved from sin. But if they have to be saved, it cannot be by anything that we are able to do by ourselves. Philip spoke more than he understood in the flesh. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. Whatever you do in your own flesh is not sufficient for you or anybody else. That every one of them may have just a little, just a little, is not enough for you to buy your time in the presence of God for just a few minutes. What is that saying? Even the resources from a very good salary are not enough to get you the righteousness that you need to get the life of heaven. To get a righteous standing before God. Your retirement income may be enough for now, but is it enough for eternity? No, it is going to run out. The psalmist says in Psalm 49.6, Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches, yes, those who trust in their wealth for salvation, who make their wealth their God and boast in the abundance of their riches, have a huge problem. They do not know something about salvation. They do not know that no man by any means can redeem his brother. No man can by any means. Impossible. Redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. It is impossible for another man to redeem his brother from sin and God's judgment. You can't be paying indulgences for anybody as to complete the payment of their redemption. The psalmist says it's impossible. You can't do that. That's foolishness. It's impossible for any man to contribute anything towards their own salvation. It is impossible for men and their resources to make a ransom payment, a payment to release them from the prison of sin and condemnation. If anybody goes to purgatory, they are gone to purgatory for eternity. There's no means from man and by man that is sufficient for them to be justified by God. That is to be accepted as righteous by him. Trying to be good is not good enough. And being religious is not good enough. Hear this. Psalm 49.8 For the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever. He should cease Paying those indulgences forever and ever. The redemption of one's soul 
is too costly. The price that needs to be paid for your soul to be saved is too high. And above your resources or the resources of angels. Why? Because of who you sinned against. If you sinned against me and you took one of my cows, brothers 10, you could go and buy a cow and be able to make it right with me. If you sinned against an angel, potentially there's ability and time for you to make full payment. You can pay them back. But because of the nature of God, the holiness of right and righteousness of God, which is an eternal and infinite holiness, it's impossible for you to make the payment. So that is the problem. That is why the redemption of your soul is costly. is because of whom you sinned against. But there's something that is very important here. Something that is being said. If your soul needs to be redeemed, if your soul needs ransom payment, it also means your soul does not belong to you. Someone has legal authority over it. It belongs to sin and judgment. And it needs to be recovered from there through a very costly payment, very exorbitant payment, a very costly transaction. And because it is so expensive, the Lord says, one such person should cease trying to save themselves or their brother forever. Just quit it. You're wasting time. It's not going to happen. And just to show you that this is the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ comes with the same theology. And he echoes the same understanding almost word for word. Matthew 16, verse 26. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What do you see? This is all accounting language. Jesus is an accountant. Profit, gain, loss, and exchange. Jesus knows something about the balance sheet. He knows something about the profit and loss statement. He says what profit, what gain is there if a man wins the worth of the whole world and lose their own soul. There's an exchange there. Apparently the soul of a man is worth more than the world and all its resources according to Jesus' understanding. And whatever the world has is not sufficient in value to redeem one's soul. What this is saying is, if the world belonged to one person, all the natural resources and the wealth of the world, 
if all that was redeemed and put on the market and the value placed on everything, the gold, the silver, the oil, you name it, Jesus says, that's not enough to redeem yourself. That's serious business. One soul, again, according to Jesus, does not belong to them. There is need for an exchange of value that needs to be made for one soul to be set free. And we have to find a way for you to make an exchange for your soul. That is your biggest occupation between now and death. To find a way to make that transaction. We have to find a way for your sister to sell. Because the price on your soul is too costly. The redemption price is too costly for any man to afford. The whole world cannot afford and exchange for your soul. What will a man give in exchange for their soul is the greatest question that every man, every woman and child have to answer before they die. If their soul is not exchanged from its prison now, it will not be exchanged any time in eternity. The transaction has to happen here and now before the grave. There needs to be made a payment for this exchange to happen if one has to live eternally according to the psalmist. The psalmist says in Psalm 49.9 that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. So the purpose of the redemption prize is for you to live on eternally and that you should not undergo decay. It is saying you need a redemption prize to be paid for your soul that you should live in peace with God, that you should have eternal life, that you should not undergo decay and corruption for all of eternity. The decay and corruption is not necessarily saying that you are going to die and just be eaten by worms. It's saying you are going to exist in a state of eternal corruption. In a state of eternal corruption. But here, Jesus' solution. Here, Jesus' solution. We are back to John 6. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. When Jesus was posing the question, What shall a man give? For he saw. He himself knew the answer to that question. When Jesus posed the question about where to buy food, where to buy the food to feed all these people, he knew what he was going to do. Jesus knows what he was going to do to feed the people that they may not die of hunger. He knew that he was the one going to save them. 
Jesus did not need five barley loaves and two fish from the little boy. It is not by accident that John mentions the Passover here because Jesus is the Passover lamb of God and that is what you need for salvation. And just because I love the servant of God, just having that little boy with the five loaves, it's just mind-blowing that God purposefully made sure that nobody brought in other food but that little boy. God made sure that only that little boy, Charlie, had five loaves and two fish. I think you're that little boy. So Jesus is the Passover lamb of God. It's a necessary statement that John has dropped as he is writing his story. It is the same Jesus who said in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for not just one, but for many. The psalmist said, no brother, no person can redeem his brother. It's impossible. But Jesus shows up and says, guess what? I have the ransom price to not purchase not just one, but many. Jesus is the ransom price. This one who asked, what will a man give in exchange for his soul is he who gives himself as the ransom payment for the exchange. The cost of bread exceeded 200 denarii, an impossible amount. But this one, by his own blood, he is able to make the ransom payment as the Passover lamb that his people who are in the prison of sin, death, and condemnation can be lifted out to life and justification. Yes, God demands that we be good and righteous. But let us never think that that demand is saying you are able to be good and righteous. He knows we can't do it. He does it to test us. Because he himself knew what he would do in his son. But those who are working in the flesh, those who go by the religion of works, they think they can do it. But God knows that his own son was going to be our Passover lamb and our ransom payment. So when the people had eaten, everyone had as much as they wanted. And they were all filled. Such that there was extra food. Extra food left. And of course, this, is, this reminds us of the manna in the desert. The children of Israel who were mumbling and complaining and saying, Moses, you brought us to kill us here. Were there not graves in Egypt? Life was so good in Egypt. Oh, how everybody loves Egypt. We always think that our life used to be better before we came to Christ. Oh, my life was so good. 
missing those onions and garlic <laughs> in Egypt. But this is the record of what happened at the feeding of the children of Israel from Exodus 16. Exodus 16, verses 16 to 18. This is what the Lord has commanded. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You should take an omer, a piece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no like. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. So what are we seeing? We are seeing the satisfaction of God's provision in all things. From just five loaves and two fish, Jesus was teaching his sufficiency for the salvation of his people. The lesson was not bring your own barley loaves to Jesus and he will multiply them. That would be the lesson for the prosperity gospel preachers. The lesson was Jesus is sufficient in all things. Our sufficiency is from God, Apostle Paul says. Jesus and his work are everything that we need in salvation. And because of that, the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That's all you need. And you need a redemption price. You need a ransom payment to be made on your behalf that you may have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. But there's another important application that I wanted to draw for you. I really do applications. I do applications. But there are more applications designed to teach you more about Christ so that you rest more in what Christ has accomplished than giving you a list of things to go home and do and feel confident in what you're doing. But this is something that I could not pass though. God gives us difficult situations in life not because we can handle them. He gives us a multitude of problems that when we open our eyes, we see them following us everywhere. And it, it, it sounds like he is saying, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? These problems. These multitude of problems. How are you going to satisfy them as to remove them? And stop them from following you. He says, what resources of your own do you have to deal with the situation that I have given you? What resources? In our fleshly mind, we are quick to doubt and despair of difficult situations. In the face of an impossible situation. 
our solution is to try and get help or to look for bread from among our friends. Get the bread from the little boy. And that should be able to help with this great situation that nobody obviously is able to help. But we never stop trying. We have to go out and try to find a solution. Listen to this. But Jesus is just testing us. For he knows what he is going to do with the situation. And you see your own experience that when you've had a situation, the solution was always the unexpected solution. Always what you did not think was going to happen. That's what happens for the solution. He is testing us that we may know him as he was testing his disciples to know him. And let that be your source of comfort and joy that even though your trials are many, like that great multitude, it is because the Lord has ordered that you be followed by a great multitude of trials because he knows what he's going to do for you. The trials are just to show you your inability to help yourself so that you may rely on him. But also in the process of relying on him, you get to know Christ better. You get to know the ways of God better. And you hear people talking, and you can tell when you hear, when you hear people talking, you can tell that this person does not know the God of the Bible. You can tell. Like, this guy is just foolish. Foolishness. I was rebuked for using that word. It's a bad word. I should not use foolishness. <laughs> yeah. And sinners. <laughs> you can't use those, those bad words. They are banned. <laughs> we are finishing. All the fragments were gathered up and nothing was lost. When God teaches you, you will learn all the lessons. When God never tries to teach anybody. God never tries to do anything. Let there be light and there was light. If the Lord intends to teach you, you are going to learn the lesson. Remember, we were told that he was teaching or testing Philip and the disciples also. And nothing was lost. The teaching was not lost. This was not really saying, Jesus, uh, what are those people? Is a prepper. Or is teaching his people to be preppers. Or to be clipping the coupons and making sure that we don't lose anything. That's not what is being said. Jesus was teaching us the value of the actual bread from heaven. Himself. That none of his body offered was going to fail to accomplish the purpose for which it was offered. That is why. His body was not going to suffer decay. He had to be preserved whole in the grave without decay and to resurrect in his fullness because all that was necessary for the salvation of his people. All this bread is just a type of the body of Christ. 
as he is going to expand the teaching in this very chapter. And the Jews are going to get mad at him and say, this man is causing us to be cannibalists. Yes, he wants us to drink his blood. What's wrong with him? <laughs> and eat his body. <laughs> oh, wow, that's gross. <laughs> but they were not getting it. They were not getting it. So this, you see, that Passover breadcrumb is necessary to connect the theology of salvation. Apostle John is just a brilliant writer. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit who is weaving this verse. But listen to verse 14 and 15. Those will be our last two verses. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The people thought, okay, this is the guy that we needed. His political campaign is good. His jobs program, very, very good. We do not need to work. And so we need to put out more flyers for him. He has to be of the same stature as Elijah who fed the hundred people. And there was plenty of food left. He has to be of the same stature as Moses. Moses delivered the people from Egypt and then fed them with the manna from heaven. And this one also heals people, is feeding people. But he has one thing left in his resume to be complete. Jesus, you are lacking something in your resume. We are going to nominate you king right now. We are not even going to have a democratic national convention and no need of delegates. By a unanimous vote, Jesus, we are making you our king right now. We are inviting you to ourselves. We are making you king so that you can feed us and also to go overthrow our enemy, the Romans. Jesus, you are here for us, for our own purpose. Jesus, we are putting you to good use, to work and fulfill our own fleshly agenda. That sounds like the salvation formula of modern-day Christianity. I am inviting you, Jesus, into my heart and making you the Lord and Savior. I am making you King, Jesus. But here Jesus' response. <laughs> that sounds like prosperity gospel, right? <laughs> but here Jesus' response in verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, perceived not necessarily that he was hearing what they were saying, he's perceiving what they're thinking because he's God. He knows what they are up to. And they're determined to take him by force and make him king, he departed. Jesus did not entertain their political and fleshly ambitions. Jesus was on a different mission, a spiritual mission, 
and his kingdom was not of this world. They could not make him king. They had no power to make Jesus king. He was already king. And he was already Lord and Savior. And there are many who are coming to Jesus looking for miracles and the physical food that he provides and they want to make him king. They are finding a job for Jesus. Jesus, I don't think you should work in the state department. We need to put you in the White House. In my White House where you can save me with my own fleshly needs and agenda. But Jesus says, no, I am departing from you and have departed from you. Jesus is not there to service the physical needs of people. And the majority of the so-called ministries, the big ministries, the ones that have thousands of people, they are founded on making Jesus king. Forcibly putting him on their own throne and say, now you do what we tell you to do for us. Lord have mercy. But this is what we know. Jesus was revealed to save sinners. To be the ransom payment for his people that they may be saved and not to give them free loaves of bread and fish. That's our gospel. And praise the Lord. Let's go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you again. Lord, we worship you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whom you made Lord and King. Not of the Roman Empire, not of this world, even though he is sovereign over all things. But his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. His kingdom is the kingdom of life and everlasting righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that you, through his faithfulness, you have given us the redemption price. You have given us the ransom payment for our sin and our condemnation that we may have what is required for the exchange of life. For we do not have life in ourselves. Life has to be given through an exchange. And Jesus accomplished the exchange. He did not leave us to finish the exchange. He did not leave us to pay indulgences that we may finish the exchange. He did not leave us to be good first before we could be saved. He accomplished the work. And he accomplished the work and we know that after he fed the 5,000, there was plenty of food left. And even now, Lord, we know that we have bountiful blessings Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessings that are bountiful, Lord. No ear has had, no eye seen. What God has in store for his children. Lord, we praise you and glorify you for your people whom you gathered today. May you keep them as they go out during the week. You know their struggles. You know their longings. You know their fears. Lord, may you continuously remind them 
of what Christ has done and their sufficiency in him. That he will never leave them nor forsake them. And will meet them and will bring them to himself in due time. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.